This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. The French king's dungeons were dark and damp, but the constant chill of ancient stone was far from the worst part of Philip the Fair's cells. His men were versed in the ways of torture. The Middle Ages were not a gentle time. Justice was rough, and violence was a vehicle that drove towards the truth, or so the torturers claimed. For the Knights Templars strapped to the wheel, it just felt like agony. Agony they'd do anything to escape. Tell the truth, tell a lie. It didn't matter so long as it made the pain stop. The stories eked out with the wheel and the whip were ferried to courts around France. Not everyone believed them. But they were remarkably consistent. Worship of a strange idol, spitting on the cross, ritualized sex. The knights were no angels. That much Christendom already knew. They'd failed to regain the Holy Land, after all. But could there be demons beneath those white mantles? Could devil-worshipping and heretical practices have infiltrated the heart of Christian society and turned it to rot? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. 
from the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, will explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our second of two episodes on the Knights Templar, a religious order of Christian warriors who dominated the early Middle Ages with their extraordinary wealth. Last week, we talked about the Knights' formation, their rise to power, and their rituals as far as the order officially recorded them. This week, we'll track their abrupt downfall and the dark rumors about their real rights that have been circulating ever since. By 1307, the Knights Templar had been a significant part of Christian life across Europe for almost 200 years. With each passing decade, they'd grown richer, transitioning from holy warriors to landowners and bankers. Their relationship with the Pope and much of Europe's nobility, including King Philip the Fair of France, was symbiotic. In return for donations and privileges like tax exemptions, they lent money and provided a means for getting into God's good graces. They even helped the French king run his treasury using the Temple of Paris, the order's local headquarters, as a base. This bank was considered one of the most secure in all of Europe and an emblem of the order's power and influence over Christians everywhere. Theirs was the godly, unbreachable vault. It was a security Philip and his court appreciated. But by the end of the 13th century, not everyone was pleased with the order and its enormous, seemingly untouchable power and wealth. It had been instituted as a part of the Crusades, and after 1291, when Christian powers were fully forced out of the Middle East by their Muslim opponents, many Europeans started to wonder how effective the Knights Templar really were. They certainly guzzled enough money from their own lands as well as the donations of pious Christians around Europe and the Middle East. Plus, there were privileges, namely exemptions from taxes. Some wondered why had so much money and manpower failed to crush the power of the Middle East? Clearly, reform was needed. As we discussed last week, one popular idea for reform was to combine the Knights Templar with another powerful religious military order, like the Knights Templar's on-again, off-again rivals, the Knights Hospitaller. Jacques de Molay, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, was not a fan of the proposal. In early 1307, he traveled to the seat of Pope Clement V in the south of France at Avignon to say as much. The Pope acquiesced. He wouldn't force the Union. But he couldn't leave the debate at that. Some kind of Templar reform was needed to keep the people of Europe happy. Instead of the merger, he agreed to conduct a thorough investigation into the Order's issues later, in October, and find solutions then. Naturally, Clement mentioned this decision in a letter to French King Philip the Fair. It was standard practice for European leaders to correspond about events and developments in their personal realms of power. This letter wasn't intended to cast more shadows on the Knights Templar, at least no more than international frustration with the failed crusades already had. But nevertheless, it implied that the knights weren't such perfect warriors of God as they seemed, and it may have planted the seed of what was to come. 
in the fertile soil of Philip the Fair's court. Where someone picked up that letter. Maybe Philip himself. Maybe one of his advisors. But whoever it was, the Pope's pending investigation seems to have been the impetus for a dark, insidious thought. Perhaps the Knights Templar's failings were worse than the Pope knew. After all, no one could be sure what happened behind their myriad temple doors. And no one knew better than the French court, just how far and wide the Knights Templar's power expanded. The order operated as the French king's bankers, after all. When you took their evident failings, which even the Pope had pointed out, and combined it with their extraordinary influence, power, and wealth, anything could be possible. The order's crimes could easily extend all the way to the most blasphemous and unacceptable sins of the Middle Ages, crimes against God and church. If that was the case, well, they should be arrested, all of them, on charges of heresy. Then they should be burned at the stake. Whether he originated these suspicions or not, Philip the Fair seems to have decided it was terrifyingly possible that the knights were more than just ineffective crusaders. They were depraved sinners. He started collecting rumors. Some at the French court murmured that perhaps they were idol worshippers. Unacceptable. Some cried, corruption, surely. Some gasped, sodomites, practicing institutionalized homosexuality, utterly ungodly for medieval Christians. The whispers did it. Philip the Fair had decided. On September 14, 1307, a secret missive went out from Paris to the king's officials across France. Preparations were to be made for the arrest and the imprisonment of all of the Knights Templar in the country, including the Grand Master, who would be visiting Paris in a month's time. The following weeks were a flurry of activity, quiet activity. Local law enforcement prepared their strategies for arrest, Local jailers prepped their cells and their torture chambers. With no one but the king's men any wiser, they had to keep this quiet. If the Templars knew what was coming, they'd have time to coordinate a response. And with their money, their influence, and their skilled knights, that response could be devastating. But the Templars didn't know they had to prepare for such a betrayal. Instead, they were most likely focused on the debate they thought was before them, one about the best, most efficient way for them to carry out their work, run their lands, and cooperate with fellow Christian military orders. They were thinking about small reforms, not disaster. The Pope prepared for his own investigation, set for mid-October, geared towards answering those same questions. And then, on Friday, October 13, 1307, the king's appointed day arrived. Friday the 13th would never be seen the same way again. It was dawn. Templars around France, many of them older men, not fit for duty in more active territories, were readying for their morning tasks around Templar grounds, in Templar businesses at Templar banks. They were saying prayers or preparing for worship and quiet reflection. 
And then... The king's men burst through their doors, seized them, yelled that they stood accused of heresy. And threw them into jail cells. The public was shocked. Were these holy knights, for all their failings as crusaders, heretical? The knights were flabbergasted. They had no idea that the king of France, whose finances they managed till the day they were thrown in prison, distrusted them. And the pope, who'd known nothing of this inquisition, was incensed. Accusations of heresy should be made with papal approval, considering heresy was about crimes against God, not the state. And on top of that, the Templars were ruled directly under the Pope's authority, like any other monastic order, not the king's. But Clement V hadn't authorized these arrests. He wasn't going to let this affront stand. At least, not at first. Not until Templars started admitting to Philip's charges of heresy and ritualized sex. Coming up, the criminal trials of the Knights Templar redefine the Order's legacy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Now back to the story. At dawn on Friday, October 13, 1307, King Philip the Fair of France had every Knight Templar in his kingdom arrested on charges of heresy. He acted without the permission or knowledge of Pope Clement V, taking God's justice into his own secular hands. Examples of the king's charges read as follows. During the knight's initiation ceremony, the brothers were required to deny Christ, to spit on the cross, and to place three obscene kisses on the lower spine, the navel, and the mouth. They were obliged to indulge in carnal relations with other members of the order, if requested by a brother. And finally, they wore a small belt, which had been consecrated by touching a strange idol, which looked like a human head with a long beard. These charges were focused on two things. One, heresy, that is, beliefs out of line with Christianity's most basic tenets, like the worship of Christ and the rejection of idols. And secondly, on sexual relations between brothers, which, according to the charges, were not just rampant amongst brothers, but were actually a ritualized part of life as a Templar. These were the worst crimes a religious order could commit. And as we discussed in our first episode on the subject, in the Middle Ages, the general Christian population was so deeply pious that these offenses were earth-shattering. 
In fact, even the order itself had to, at least officially, agree. Its official rule said that sexual relations between brothers was a horrible, ungodly, and unacceptable crime. It was grounds for expulsion from the Knights Templar. The rule even tells the story of three brothers who committed what the text calls acts against nature. All of them were brought before the Grand Master and put in irons. One escaped and defected to the Middle East, one was killed in an escape attempt, and one was permanently imprisoned. None remained a brother. But according to Philip the Fair's accusations, the rule had all been for show, the punishments simply an example. He argued the knights were in fact forced to engage in sexual acts together, beginning immediately upon initiation to the order, with obscene kisses upon the navel and continuing through daily life. At the time of the arrests, these accusations seemed to be based almost entirely in supposition and rumors, albeit supposition and rumors grounded on the very real premise that the knights were not perfect godly warriors. Rumors fed by the fact that they had the wealth, power, and status to hide any number of crimes. But after the arrests, suddenly the proof started rolling in. Many Templars, including Grandmaster Jacques de Molay himself, confessed. Hearings were held against the Knights in Paris between October and November of 1307. And out of the 138 depositions we still have from these, only four show Templars completely denying accusations. And those four weren't important men in the Order's hierarchy. The leaders all confessed. This is an excerpt of October 26th testimony of John of Tours, the treasurer of the temple at Paris, as recorded by the notary at the trial. Before his arrest, he was a trusted financial advisor of Philip the Fair. Quote, on the order of the receptor, he denied Jesus Christ once only and spat upon the cross once. He said also on his oath that after this, the receptor kissed him three times, namely, Firstly, on the base of the spine of the back, secondly, on the navel, and thirdly, on the mouth. Asked concerning the vow of chastity which was enjoined on him, he said on his oath that he was prohibited from knowing women, but if any natural heat should move him, he could unite himself with his brothers, and similarly he should suffer this from them. There are shades of the Order's official reception ceremony here. Remember that kiss on the mouth. But clearly, this is a very different version, one that closely follows King Philip's accusations. Most of the confessions, like that of John of Tours, focused on the initiation ceremony, with its blasphemy, like spitting on the cross, and its sexual overtones, with the kisses on the lower back and navel. Many of the confessions also confirmed that during the initiation ceremony, the new knights were instructed to have sex with their brothers whenever they wanted, but few admitted to actually having that sex themselves, or even hearing of other brothers doing so. Perhaps they were afraid to admit to such a personal crime. After all, the initiation ceremony was in a sense inflicted on them as new recruits. Maybe they couldn't bear the shame of going out and choosing sex outside of Christian marriage for themselves. But whether or not Templars were encouraging or requiring ongoing sex between brothers, 
Even the confessions to spitting on crosses and giving naval kisses were enough to turn the tides. On November 22nd, Pope Clement V stopped resisting Philip's accusations. He ordered the general arrest of the Templars outside of France. By taking over the investigation himself, Clement was able to preserve at least the appearance of papal control over the knights, although in reality, he was simply stepping into line with the course of events Philip had already set in action. Not every European ruler was sold on the veracity of the confessions, though, including Edward II of England. After the arrests, King Edward sent letters to Pope Clement and the kings of Portugal, Castile, Aragon, and Sicily, defending the order. He then wrote again to the Pope on December 10th, stating that he was unable to credit the horrible charges against the Knights Templar, who everywhere bear a good name in England. He wanted more proof of the Templars' alleged crimes against God. He simply couldn't believe these men he'd always liked, respected, and trusted were monsters spitting on the name of the Lord. But Edward II's doubt and disbelief were too late. The confessions of the Templars were seeping out into medieval society across Europe, to the horror of Christians everywhere. Their time had come to face justice. Their lies were exposed. Their jig was up. On December 20th, 1307, King Edward received orders from the Pope to arrest all the Templars in England. And he acquiesced. Everyone finally knew. Behind the Templars' rule was another rule, one never written down but shared presumably by word of mouth between Templars across Europe and the Middle East. The Knights were not what they'd seemed. But then things grew more complicated. In December 1307, every leader of the Templars who'd confessed revoked his confession. They were ready to resist Philip the Fair's so-called justice. The only reason they'd admitted anything in the first place, they claimed, was because they'd been tortured. But now, no longer stretched on the rack, they were adamant that the Knights Templar were the God-loving, chaste brothers that they had always seemed to be. Still bitter that Philip the Fair was encroaching on his power over the order, the Pope took their recanted confessions as an opportunity to reassess. He suspended all proceedings against the Knights Templar. But Philip was not going to let that suspension last long. After all, so many knights had confessed. The investigation had to proceed. So under the Pope's auspices, it did. In July 1308, Clement set up two separate inquiries. One would be conducted at the local level throughout France, where the guilt of individual Templars would be examined. The other would be conducted from Paris and examine the complicity of the order as a whole. These trials were much slower going than Philip's quick proceedings in the fall of 1307. Most likely, that was just what Pope Clement intended. Instead of two months, they took three years. And this time, the Templars put up a good fight. Following the example of their leaders in Paris, 
many of them refusing to confess. But not all of them. Some put forward admissions that were extremely similar to those originally made in Paris. These were at times remarkably detailed, describing things like the color, shape, and positioning of the ungodly idols the Templars worshipped. For example, one forearm-sized metal statue of a standing boy. And the confessions were remarkably consistent, too consistent to be invented under torture. At least, according to King Philip, he felt confident this testimony had proved him right. The Order of the Knights Templar was a hotbed of cross-spitting, idol-worshipping demons. In May 1310, the knights who'd confessed during the Pope's investigation were executed, but the order itself was allowed to remain standing, at least for the moment. By the time the Paris hearings ended, in June 1311, the Knights Templar still had a few supporters, who thought the suggestions of torturers could have led to consistent confessions. They believed Jacques de Molay and the other knights who denied Philip's charges. But as we see in our legal systems, even to this day, conflicting testimonies don't look good. The knights' leaders had confessed before they denied Philip's claims, and now this distrust was indelibly linked with the order. The shadows of the failed crusades look darker now, and anything could be hiding behind their mask of extreme wealth. The Pope made the only decision he could. He had the reputation of the Catholic Church as a whole to think about. In 1312, the Order of the Knights Templar was abolished. Two years later, sentencing was carried out against the Order's leaders, including de Molay. He remained adamant that he was a humble servant of God to the end, even as he stood on the pyre. His hands were held together in prayer by the ropes that bound him at his request. According to legend, as the flames consumed him, he called out that both Pope Clement and King Philip would soon meet him before God. His words translate to, God knows who's wrong and has sinned. Soon a calamity will occur to those who have condemned us to death. Pope Clement passed away only a month later. King Philip died in a hunting accident before the end of the year. It was an ominous end for the whole affair, one that suggested an unearthly power rested in de Molay. But neither Demolay's insistence on his innocence nor his unsettling prophecy was enough to save the Knights Templar. In the aftermath of the trial and the abolition of the order, surviving Templars faced a range of fates. Some received pensions and continued to live in former Templar houses, despite the fact that these properties had been seized and redistributed to the Hospitallers. Some joined other monastic orders, some who had confessed were imprisoned. The gentler fates were more common where the Templars had never fully lost the support of local monarchs, notably England and several kingdoms on the Iberian Peninsula in what's now Spain. Imprisonment was most popular in France. 
Meanwhile, a papal bull, or official decree, ensured that the knight's property and immense wealth went to the knight's hospitaller. That way, the Pope asserted, all the pious people who had given donations, expecting them to go to the cause of the Holy Land, wouldn't be duped. The knight's hospitaller were still operational, and their central purpose was still aiding pilgrims. Clement also never officially condemned the Knights Templar. By disbanding the order, he bowed to the reality of its damaged reputation. But he didn't admit that any wrongdoing had officially occurred, even as its leaders were executed. It was quite an end for the order, as ambiguous and difficult to unravel as its rise and demise. The Knights Templar disappeared, their extraordinary power lost, their independence gone, their wealth dispersed, and their reputation mired in a confusing mess of confessions and recanted confessions. But their story was far from over. In fact, it was just beginning. Coming up, we'll assess the likelihood that the order was more than it seemed and examine its enduring legacy. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now back to the story. The French King Philip the Fair's takedown of the Knights Templar wasn't a roaring success. But by 1314, the order had been abolished, and its Grand Master burned at the stake. Like the Crusades, the Knights Templar became a thing of the past. Medieval historians, however, made them into a parable. Their story did have a convenient arc for these Christian chroniclers. They'd started out humble, pious servants of God. Then they got too powerful, too rich, too proud. 
worldly pleasures corrupted them, led them towards heresy, and then they faced retribution. It's a conveniently clean narrative. And as we discussed last week, it's almost certainly exaggerated in that the Order of the Knights Templar was never exactly humble. It started out as an aristocratic enterprise, if not a multinational corporation. But the general logic is reasonable enough that it stands some examination. Great power, wealth, and independence do give rise to opportunities for less than savory behaviors. And historians have found substantial evidence that the Knights Templar did engage in at least one sinful behavior, simony. That is, taking bribes in exchange for ecclesiastic favors. For example, the Templars expected donations from knights who joined the order, and they would offer to bury wealthy men and pray for them, and even induct them into the order on their deathbeds if those wealthy men gave substantial donations to the order. These kinds of tit-for-tat exchanges were expressly forbidden for monastic orders. It was indeed sinful, according to the religious laws that governed the knights. But they're a far cry from the kind of practices the criminal trial suggested the knights engaged in. Those accusations have found little proof. None of the idols the knights supposedly worshipped were ever produced as evidence. The trials relied exclusively on confessions. And just as de Molay argued, confessions elicited through torture are a far cry from proof. Still, why was Philip so adamant to destroy the Templars if the rumors weren't true? To explain that, we have to examine his particular situation in the early 14th century and his distinct relationship with the Knights Templar. Philip was in debt. He'd inherited some of it from his father. Then he'd accrued more thanks to wars fought against England and Flanders. And he was desperate for a way out of his financial predicament. He'd taken creative measures like devaluing his currency and confiscating property. First, from the Lombard merchants, who'd lent him some money and had considerable assets in France. In 1291, he seized those assets and returned them only when the Lombard merchants paid him enormous sums, ostensibly in return for French citizenship. In 1306, he took a similar approach to France's Jewish community, but with even less of a cover story. He simply expelled them from the country on the grounds that they were undermining the Christianity of France and seized all their assets. But these measures still weren't enough to pay off his debts. His advisors started whispering amongst themselves as the creditors, the Templars central amongst them, stood impatient by the doors. And the Pope's letter about an impending investigation into the management of the Knights Templar sat prominently on the King's desk. The Pope's letter would have been an incredibly tempting catalyst for the manufacture of darker accusations against the Knights Templar, and King Philip the Fair had already proven he was comfortable seizing property that wasn't his. Why not do the same with the Templars, this time with the added benefit of erasing his debt to the Order? If that was his goal, it only half worked. 
considering that the Pope bequeathed the night seized property to the Hospitallers, but with no order, that did mean no more debt to the order. It certainly presents a motive for him to look for wrongdoing against the Templars, even if he didn't have proof. And he would have had the loyalty of many of the French officials who were conducting the torture against Templars. An edict from King Philip could have gone a long way towards ensuring uniform confessions across wide swaths of France. Still, even if Philip did have motive to take down the Templars, and even if there isn't hard proof of their wrongdoing, neither motive nor lack of proof means a lack of crime there remains the possibility that the knights did have secret, unwritten practices, or even that they had records that were never uncovered. Today, most of the Order's archives have been lost to time. But without any hard evidence, there's little insight into what those secret crimes might have been, and whether they were in keeping with King Philip's accusations or not. It does, however, seem most likely that their secrets, or shameful actions, were most likely in keeping with simony, the small, sinful crimes of opportunity that made them neither better nor worse than your average flawed human. But the story of the Templars' enigmas doesn't end with the 14th century and the trials that supposedly destroyed their organization. In the 18th century, a secret society called the Freemasons developed, one we'll go into in more depth in a future episode of this show. For now, we'll just say that the society started in England in the form of exclusive clubs, and by the 1730s, it had spread to France. Then, in 1737, one member of the society drew up a history of Freemasonry, And eventually, as the history was edited and developed, the Templars became a central element. They were, the history claimed, the knightly ancestors of Freemasonry. If you recall from our first episode on the Templars, the Knights' first base was at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in what was largely believed to be the location of the biblical Temple of Solomon. According to the Freemasons, this temple was the repository of secret wisdom and magical powers. The Templars guarded these magical secrets, and before Jacques de Molay was burned at the stake, he transmitted them to his successors, the ancestors of the Freemasons. This lore created a powerful link between the idea of the Templars and magical, mystical secrets, not just heretical ones, It also introduced the idea that the Templars lived on as an organization after its apparent 1314 dissolution. These are ideas that today swirl through fiction about the Knights Templar in books like The Da Vinci Code and films like National Treasure. Now, several former Knights Templar survived the Templar trials, enough that if the Order did have secrets, obscene, magical, or otherwise, they could have been transmitted down through the generations until the Freemasons were founded. In the 19th century, some people, generally with ties to Freemasonry, promised they'd found proof of this possibility. They made the miraculous discovery of various Templar objects in old libraries and storerooms. These included a list of grand masters since de Molay's death, carved images linking the Templars to other heretical sects, and secret rules to complement and undermine the public ones. 
they apparently confirmed the Freemason version of the Templar legacy. But there was a hitch to these findings. None of these artifacts seemed to have existed before 1800. Their apparent discovery was almost certainly a hoax. But that doesn't mean that they don't tell a fascinating story. The second life of the Templars in Masonic histories and then popular culture speaks to the enduring fascination of the order. The combination of unanswered questions and the intriguing premise of enormously wealthy holy warriors is endlessly generative. And this has left the mythology of the knights far more pervasive than the history we've explored. It's the idea of ancient secrets, whether good, evil, or somewhere in between, left standing centuries after de Molay burned at the stake. While making a prophecy, no less, the real-life knights certainly had their occult ties to the later mythology. Some even allege the tradition of Friday the 13th as unlucky traces back to the date Philip the Fair had his men round up and arrest every living Templar. But regardless of how closely the Da Vinci Code's Knights Templar resembles the real-life holy warriors, that focus on mythology and storytelling is what places the Templars right in line with all secret societies. They all thrive on mystique. And while the historical Templars can only tentatively be called a secret society, if we accept the accusations against them were simply drummed up by a greedy king, then the way their story's been handed down to the present certainly makes them into one. In a sense, they've become, through a backward-facing lens, the original secret society. Thanks again for tuning in to Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Knights Templar, amongst the many sources we used, we found Malcolm Barber's book, The New Knighthood, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 